So we're going to go ahead and jump into our message. Just so you know, give you a little roadmap uh, for the next couple weeks. We're going to be finishing our weeds and wheat series next Sunday. And then starting on the 6th of December, we're going to be starting our new Christmas series. And so again, one to kind of give you an idea. So we have a couple more weeks in this series about the life of David. But uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in this morning to weeds and wheat. We're going to start obviously with Galatians 6, 7, and 8. This series has really been about this concept of, of, of uh, basically reaping and sowing and, and all those sort of things that we need to understand and, and get. Uh, I thought it kind of fit really well through, through kind of the end of October and in November because the harvest and all those things are kind of usually on our mind. Uh, but Galatians 6, 7, and 8 has kind of been our our main verse for the series, and this is what it says, don't be misled, you cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And we have been kind of talking about this concept of this reaping and sowing in our lives and growth that God wants us to have and, and the growth that we need to see as we're growing in Him and maturing in Him. And, and listen, let me, let me help you out with this and just so you all kind of get a visual picture here. Because um, I was kind of thinking about it this week as, as I was kind of outside and, and, and Emily and I, uh, well mainly Emily, I, I enjoyed the, the bounty of this situation, but she wanted a garden and so we, got, we made a, a garden, kind of a raised bed, and we had some tomato plants and other things. And, and basically, one of the things that, that you notice when you're raising a garden or having all these things is, is the plants start here, and if you're doing it right, it, it, they get bigger. Right? You know, they, they're supposed to grow. I mean, here's the, here's the easy way to know if a plant is real or fake. If it never grows, it's plastic, okay? I, I think we can figure that out. But this, these plants began to grow, and then they began to, to have uh, fruit on them and, and vegetables on them. You could actually see the growth taking place. And here's the thing, in our spiritual lives, I believe we need to be taking time to look at our lives and go, listen, am I seeing growth here? Am I seeing fruit here that's coming out? A lot of us walk, uh, spiritually speaking, with our spiritual lives with our eyes closed, thinking, oh, it's just going to magically happen. It's just going to, there's going to be fruit that are just going to come, and we have to work on those things and allow those things to take place. And when we, we sow good things, we're going to harvest good things. And so we need to understand that. So God is doing something inside of us to help us, and we need to understand that. And this has been kind of our phrase that we need to remember throughout the whole series is this, God wants you to grow, and God helps you. To grow. My, my, my hope is in about five years, um, basically, you'll still be able to come up to me and say, I remember that series back in 2020, uh, and, and you know, God helps us to grow, God wants us to grow. And that, that's kind of pounded into your head. And, and, and we've been using, as kind of a backdrop for this understanding, the life of David. We've been in First and Second Samuel most of the time, and we've really looked at the, the life of David. We've looked at his heart. We've looked at some of the things he's done. And, and here's the thing. We've mainly focused on some of the really good things about David. Not today. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We're going to talk about David's big mess-ups, you know. And, and he had a pretty big one. And we're going to look at that this morning because we need to look at both sides of the coin. Now listen, here's the thing. I, I, I want us to, to learn from this, okay? This is a wonderful opportunity for us to not make the same mistakes, okay? 
and not to do the things that David did. Okay, so, so we need to make sure that, that in this, we're really hearing what God wants us to understand. Now, before we really kind of jump into it, we're going to kind of start, and then we're going to go back. But we're going to first start in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 4. But before we do, let's pray. God, I love you, and God, I need you. And God, I, I just, the, the words that I'm going to share, just quite honestly, it just aren't going to be enough. But God, when you come... And you speak through us. There is power. There is authority because your words are being spoken. So God, I pray that my words would just cease and yours would begin. And that, Father, you would open our hearts to this teaching and to this understanding. That we would learn from it and that it would be a help to us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to 2 Samuel, starting with the uh, ch chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and this is what it says. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had raised, uh, or he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. That's kind of, you know, I've, I've seen lambs. We've, I've actually had a lamb before when we were growing up. That's kind of gross, but whatever. It's really explaining here the closeness that this lamb has in this man's life. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. What a story. You know, give, give you a little context here. Nathan has been with David for a number of years. He, he, is, he is God's prophet to David. And, and he comes to David and he, he tells him this story. And, and again, what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is, is going to be centralized a little bit, but I don't want you to look at it that way. Uh, this, is, this is really something that's much broader, but I'm going to try to kind of bring it into uh, the context of what we're dealing with, but also understand it's not just uh, confined to this topic, but this is in your notes, and we're going to kind of jump into this this morning together. I want to talk about this morning the devastation of sexual sin. The devastation of sexual sin. We live in a hyper-sexualized society. It is all around us. It is very, very hard to get away from it. In a lot of ways, you know, there was a time where, where it was easier. Now that time is almost impossible. You, you can't go to the grocery store and almost go check out with, without walking past uh, certain magazines and certain things. Obviously, the internet, all these things. We live in a hyper-sexualized society. And I believe because of that, because of that and other reasons, we're seeing a rise in sexual sin like we have never seen before it has become something that is almost as sad as this is to say commonplace in our world we've almost got to the point where we've, we've just we've tuned it out it's just become we're, we're such inundated with it constantly that it's almost just something we don't even think about anymore 
the shows that we watch, the movies that we see, the magazines that we look at, the internet that we're on, it just becomes something that just is a part of, of our world, and, and we have to understand that. Because if we don't, we're going to very easily fall into the trap that I believe the enemy has laid out for us when it comes to this. And so we need to learn from this story in David's life. We need to see it. We need to study it so that we can make sure that we can do all that we can to not fall into literally the same pit that David fell into. And here's the thing. This, this, this could be about any types of sin. You know, you may be sitting there, well, you know, I'm, I'm 14 years old. You know, I'm not really dealing with this quite yet. You know, even though you are, even though you don't realize it, you are. But this is going to be something that, that all of us need to learn from. We're just going to look at a specific thing in David's life. So we're going to jump into this story. Now we're going to backtrack to 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse 1, we begin to see this story play out in the life of David. And this is what it says. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. Now, let's stop there for just a second. Let me help you see something here, because sometimes we, we can miss this, okay? It's springtime. Back in this time, and even back in, in you know, early 1800s, you know, armies didn't fight in the winter. It was too cold. It didn't work out. Think of, think of Napoleon going into Russia. I mean, this stuff didn't happen very often, because a lot of things didn't work out when it got cold. And so in this time, it was the same thing. People didn't fight in the winter. They literally, even if they were in a war with each other, they'd basically go home. They'd be like, hey, we'll, we'll see you next spring. And so that's really where this story begins. The setting begins where David, it's springtime, it's time to go back and fight, and David doesn't go out to war. Instead, he sends someone else in his place. And so this is what it says, continuing on with verse number one, they destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Okay? David was supposed to be out with the army. He's the king. That's his job. He's a warrior. He's supposed to be there, but he's not. Instead, he's at Jerusalem. Now, that gives us kind of the setting. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, basically David just took a nap, okay? David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath, okay? He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Okay? Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. So let's look at this story and let's break it down really quickly. Okay? In our story here, we see David in a situation that he never should have been in. David should never have been on the rooftop. He should have been out with his army. But for whatever reason, and we're not really told why, David isn't. David is not where he's supposed to be. He's on the roof of his palace. He just wakes up. He's walking around, and he looks, and he sees a woman taking a bath. Now, now here's the thing. Let me, let me help you with this, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, okay? Okay. 
It's not David's fault and it's not Bathsheba's fault that they're in the position that they start out in. Okay? Bathsheba didn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to go take me a bath on my roof and I'm going to, hey. That's not what happened. And David didn't wake up from his nap going, hey, I wonder if there's any beautiful women uh, taking a bath on their rooftops. It just kind of happened. It just kind of presented itself. Now, here's the thing. Are, there's going to be situations and circumstances that you're not going to be able to control. And there's some that you are. But in this moment, Dave, look what David does. David doesn't do one of these, oh, oh, oh that, nope, 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 going inside. I'm getting away from it. He, he kind of lingers. He kind of, I wonder who that is. He sends to figure out who she is. This is a premeditated situation. He's actually planning this. Who is she? What's going on? I want to know more. All these things. You know what, what I've found as I've looked at and dealt with counseling and people in situations like this? Very, very rarely. It does happen, but very, very rarely is it just this, this quick moment of, of everything's going great and all of a sudden I have an affair or all of a sudden I've done something I shouldn't have done. It's usually this process that takes place. It starts with a look and then it starts with a little more flirtation and then it starts, people start sharing things with somebody that they really shouldn't be sharing things with. It's a process that takes place. And in David's life, it's the same thing. David doesn't wake up in the morning and think, hey, I'm going to do this. It just kind of happens. And instead of taking that moment to say, wait, stop, realize what's happening, he continues on that path. And so because of that, he sins with Bathsheba. And so because of that sin, obviously, we have a problem, or David has a problem, and that is she is pregnant. She's pregnant. So with that, David begins to do something even worse. Not worse, but I mean, he, he, he compounds the issue, let's put it that way. And he comes up with basically, David comes up with three schemes, or we're going to find three schemes that David comes up with to basically try to cover and hide his sin with Bathsheba. So David's three schemes. Let's look at scheme number one. It's found in 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse number six and going to verse number 11. So this is what it says. There we go. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Now let's stop there in verse number 7 and let's kind of picture this. Now, now Uriah is just a guy. He's just a guy in the army. And David specifically calls us and says, I, I, I bring this guy to me. And he doesn't just say, come back. He actually presents himself to the king. Uriah's got to be sitting there going like, Wait, what is all this? What's going on? What's, what's happening here? And David's like, so uh, Uriah, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, how's the war going? Everything going all right? And so they're having this conversation about the war. And, and it's got to be kind of a weird situation. But anyway, that's what's going on. He wants to know how the war is progressing. All right, now let's continue on. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. Okay? Go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. Now, 
Let me kind of help us all and, and understand kind of what's going on here. David basically has brought him home and says, Hey, buddy, why don't you go on home and take it easy? Why don't you relax, okay? I don't need to probably spell this out, but relax is kind of this concept of, of Uriah is going to go home and be with his wife, okay? That's kind of what David is, is telling him to do and inviting him to do and say, Hey, why don't you just take her easy for a while, okay? But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace interest, entrance excuse me, with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So scheme number one, David basically says, hey, we'll get Uriah back. We'll send him home. Oh, congratulations, Uriah. You're having a baby. Isn't that wonderful? But Uriah is too honorable of a man. He says, listen, I can't do that when everybody else is out to war. Now listen, this is interesting. This is like one of those moments, I believe, where God kind of was like, all right, David, you've done wrong. It's time to repent. It's time to stop this. It's time to pull that domino out that keeps falling because if you don't, some bad things are going to happen. Why? Because what's Uriah telling David? He's basically saying, I won't do what you did. Where was David at? David was supposed to be out in the tents. David was supposed to be with his army. David wasn't supposed to be home. And what's Uriah say? I'm not going to go home and be with my wife while I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be there. This is his moment where David could have gone, oh my goodness, God is using Uriah to illuminate that David has messed up. And here's a moment where David could have said, I have sinned and done all those things, but he does it. And after scheme one fails, and it doesn't work, David moves on to scheme number two. And scheme number two is found in 2 Samuel 11, starting with verse number 12. It says, well, David, it kind of continues, well, I'll stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. So scheme number two, basically, then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the second scheme, he's like, I'll, I'll make sure he, he's not thinking clearly. I'll, I'll get him drunk so he'll do what he wouldn't do before. This is the second scheme. And you know what? It doesn't work. Uriah still refuses to go home. So now it brings us to scheme number three. In scheme number three, we find it kind of pick up again in 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. So after both of scheme one and two didn't work, David says, does this. So the next morning, David wrote a letter. Now I want to stop there and just let, let, let's, let's, let's take a moment here because we have spent the last basically month talking about some of the amazing things that David has done and is and his heart and all these things. And, and, and listen, that is all true. But look at what this man is doing. He is, he is scheming to keep his sin hidden. These are plans. These are premeditated actions 
I, I know this is kind of weird because when we talk about the Bible and we talk about like if we could go back and really figure out what somebody was thinking in that moment. You know, we usually think about, well, wonder what Paul was thinking at this point or, or Moses at the burning bush. It would be very interesting to go back and see what David must have been thinking as he was writing this letter. Okay? Now for us, writing a letter is, you know, we jump on the computer, we type an email, it's gone. David, it, it takes a little bit of work to write a letter. So in all this process, David is doing something extremely meditated and extremely evil. Listen to what he does. So he writes a letter to give to Joab, or to, to, uh, to Joab, and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. You know, I remember thinking about this even when I was younger and hearing this story and and, 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 and kind of this thought came to my mind, like, like, why did David trust that Uriah wouldn't open the letter? You know what I mean? Now, obviously, Uriah probably wouldn't have any reason to believe at this point that, that, that David was going to do this and write this, but, but I don't know about you, but, but sometimes, you know, you, you kind of got this little letter in your hand, you kind of want to peek into it and see what it is and kind of look, and, 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 and David trusted that Uriah wouldn't do that. I mean, the respect that David must have had for Uriah was, 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 is pretty amazing because Uriah has shown him to be a faithful man, a loyal man, and I think David knew, hey, this guy's not going to open this letter. And so basically Uriah delivers his own death warrant or death certificate, basically. And so Joab puts him there, and he's killed. He's killed. Now let's look at David's report. Let's look at David's report, starting in 2 Samuel eleven twenty two. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and we chased them back to the city gate. The archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, now this is David's response, okay? Well... Tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. This is David. This is the man that we have studied and looked at his life. This is, this is I mean, open up the book of Psalms. And, and all that he wrote and all that he did, this is, this, is, this is David. And his response is calloused and cold and indifferent. you got to feel like David, after hearing that Uriah died, is like going, boy, dodged a bullet there. This is David's heart? Yeah, this is David's heart. And so you need to understand something. And this is in your notes, and I want us to understand it. The goal of the Old Testament is not to make these, these, those people uh, look like heroes, 
okay? The goal of it is not to basically make them look like heroes. The goal is to see the good and the bad and know that Jesus forgives. One of the reasons I truly believe the Bible is a true document for many, many reasons, but one of them is we don't see just the good of these people. We see Moses striking the rock twice and when, when he should have spoken to it and not being allowed into the promised land. We see David and his sin with Bathsheba. We see Peter denying Christ three times. We don't just see the perfection of people, which is interesting because a lot of ancient documents, when they talk about their kings and they talk about their important people, that's all you hear. All the bad stuff they do, that kind of is pushed away and is not looked at. But in the Bible, we have this amazing illustration of that these people weren't perfect. These people messed up. You look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, every book, there's, it's filled with stories of people that were basically completely flawed. Why? Because God forgives. Because you know what? Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest in this situation. I'm a, I'm, I'm a lot more like the David that messes up than the David that writes a bunch of beautiful songs. Sometimes my heart is this heart of David, not the heart where God says, that's a man after my own heart. And I can remember that and know that even my imperfection, that God will forgive me as well. He'll forgive me as well. But listen, we need to understand, even though God forgives, there are still consequences. So let's look at the consequences of David's sin. Let's look at the consequences. Now let's jump back to 2 Samuel. We started our message this morning by looking at 2 Samuel 12 and that story that, that Nathan is telling David. And now we're going to see David's response. But before we jump into that, let me kind of give you an idea of where we're at. This is about a year after this has taken place. Okay, this is about a year after Uriah has been killed. Okay, so, so, so David has been living with this lie. He's been living with this situation for about a year. Probably thinks, I, I got away with it. I mean, after a year, you got to think, I, I think I got away with this. But now Nathan is there. He's told him a story. Now let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 12, verse number 5. After David heard this story about this rich man taking the one sheep, David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and had no pity. Now stop there for just a second and then we'll jump into verse number seven. You need to understand what David has communicated to Nathan. This is a moment that would really make a lot of today's Christians very, very proud in his super spiritual response. Now we got to remember what David has done. Okay, At this point, we got to believe that David has not realized what this story is going to unfold and bring out in his life. David's response is a very spiritual response. The law commands that basically if this situation happened, that basically someone killed one, somebody else's one lamb, that they were to repay that by giving them four lambs. So David here is quoting basically scripture and the law to Nathan. He's saying, well, this is what we should do in such a situation like this. But David takes it one step more and one step higher. David says, and that person should die. In David's religious 
fervor and his desire to seem so spiritual and on top of things that basically he takes one step further what the law prescribed in such a situation. And it's interesting. I know in my own life, and I listen, I will only speak for me, but in those times where I've tried to be super spiritual man and tried to show off and show everybody how awesome I am in Christianity and all those sort of things, I don't usually just stop at God's law. I go one step further. And in that moment, David is completely oblivious to what's really going on. Now listen, should we desire to grow in our faith? Yeah. Should we desire to allow God to help us grow? Should we? Absolutely. But I think we know the difference between a, a person that is growing in humbleness, knowing that God is using them and they're growing, and spiritual, spirit, uh, spiritual superiority. If you don't, I read the Gospels, and anywhere you see the word Pharisee, you'll probably get it. Those people were so obsessed with those things that Jesus is literally standing right in front of them, the Son of God, and they miss it. That's what that will do to us, and that's what it's doing to David. He's missing it. Now let's pick it up. Verse number 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. You are the man. That man that, that, that took that one sheep. When you had so much, you are that man. That man that you just said should die. That man that in your spiritual superiority idea and thought process, you couldn't even realize that it was you the whole time. David has to be confronted. And, and here's, here's the thing. Listen to me and hear me on this. This is a moment in David's life that is a major moment. But let me hear, hear me on this. I am so thankful that God loves us enough to walk up to us and say, you are that man. You are that woman. There is love in the discipline of God. And it is not easy. And it is not fun. But God doesn't do it because he's mad or angry or wants us to suffer. God does it because he loves us. And we'll see later on that even more. You are that man. Then then uh, I, and this is what God says, the Lord, the God of Israel says. So in this portion of scripture, Nathan has Stop speaking, even though he is obviously speaking, and now he is saying, this is what God is speaking to you. I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you, get the next slide there, there we go, much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? You have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's life, wife to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give, you, I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. You ever heard the phrase secret sin? I think we've all heard that phrase. Oh, it's, it's secret sin. Can I, can I help us with something? And this is something we all need to understand. In God's world, there is no such thing as secret sin because God knows it all. And God here says, listen, what you did in secret will come out. And here's the thing we need to understand, whether it happens on this planet or standing before God one day, everything we've said, everything that we do, have done will come out. Now, I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to basically, oh, well, you better watch it. Uh, no, I say that because it's truth, and we need to make sure how we live our lives is, is different in light of that understanding. And here's the crazy thing. From this time on, David's family is an absolute wreck. His, his sons, oh, it just, it gets bad. You know, there's consequences to sin. And we're going to get there in a minute. There is forgiveness, but there's still consequences. And David pays a heavy price for this. Now again, you're like, oh wow, this is, this is great. Happy Thanksgiving. Let's all be thankful. Listen, <laughs> hear my heart on this, okay? Hear my heart on this, because as I was looking at this this week, I literally was going, oh man, they're going to throw stuff at me, you know, because this is just, I mean, this is probably not what they were looking for and what they were thinking of. And, and, and listen, let me, let me put it in this really quick little nutshell. I had a friend that was a police officer, and we were talking several years ago, and, and it was right around Thanksgiving. And after Thanksgiving, he, he actually worked on that Thanksgiving, and we were talking. I said, how was, how was your Thanksgiving? I know that's probably tough that you were working and all those sort of things. And he said, oh, it was fine. You know, we, we made it do. And I said, what did you do? He said, oh, I, I pulled people over for speeding and gave them tickets. And I went, oh, great, happy Thanksgiving, you know. On the way to grandma's house with my pie, I got to get there and I'm speeding and this police officer pulls me over and gives me a ticket. And listen, I admit I was being a jerk at the moment. Okay, I was like, well, that's not fair. That's not very nice. And I told him that. I was like, well, that's not really a cool thing to do on Thanksgiving, is it? And here's his response to me. He said, you know what? I'd rather them get a ticket on Thanksgiving and get to Thanksgiving safely than to have a problem and cause a wreck and never have another Thanksgiving. And I went, I'm going to go sit down and shut up for a while. Because he was exactly right. What is this about? Why are we doing this? So we can learn from it. So that we don't have to make the same mistakes that David did. So to close all this, 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 this message out, I want to look at a couple things. I want to look at some principles we can learn from this event in David's life. I want to look at some things that we can use and apply. And again, some of these are very specific towards sexual sin, and some are not. They're more broad as far as dealing with sin. Um, and these are important. And, and here's the thing. Um, throughout this series, I've been, there's, a, there's, a, there's an author and a, kind of a pastor, a theologian. His name is Dr. Gene A. Getz. And he's wrote a book on the life of David. And, and I've really leaned on that throughout this series. And, and he's wrote out these principles that I thought were really good that I wanted to share this morning that we need to understand together. So, so principle number one, and principle number one is a good one. Never rely on past success as a security from future failure. Never allow past success 
to, to be a security for future failure. Let me, let me kind of give you a little glimpse into to my coming week. Um, obviously, it's Thanksgiving, but also this Wednesday, the 25th of November, uh, is my wife and my anniversary. We have been married, we have been married for 14 years on Wednesday, and it's been awesome, and we were dating before that, and so we've been together for quite a number of years, but, but on Wednesday, it's our 14th year anniversary, and you know what? Our, our marriage has been, been, been good at times. It's been hard at times, but, but we've grown, and we've, we love each other, and it's been, been awesome, but here's the thing to understand. I want you to kind of put this in perspective, okay? On Wednesday, I'm going to be celebrating 14 years of marriage with my wife, and it will literally take me 14 seconds to destroy all the trust, all the good things that I've created with her in our marriage just because we've had 14 years where we built trust and love with each other it can it can change in 14 seconds just because things have gone well that is not a guarantee that there is going to not be failure and so you need to understand that because I've I've met people well we've been married for this longer we've been doing all these and those things are great and those things are awesome but we can't rely on them we can't rely on them number two Number two, principle number two, avoid idleness and boredom, okay? Where does all this begin? David is not where he's supposed to be. David is bored. Look at the first part of the story. What's he doing? He's taking a nap. Now, listen, I'm not a big nap guy, but, but, but I know people love their naps. Naps aren't wrong. Everything's fine with naps, but he's, on, he's just bored. He's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be out fighting. Sometimes we need to understand that God wants us to be busy working and doing things for his kingdom because I, 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 I may say this wrong, but I kind of remember it as a kid hearing this, um, you know, idle hands are the devil's work tool. Is that what it was? And there's a lot of truth to that. We need to be busy about what our Father has for us to do because sometimes when we're bored and left to our own devices, some bad things can happen. So we need to understand that. We need to avoid it. Principle number three, principle number three, it is too easy to rationalize sexual sin. Always be on guard against it. It's too easy. I deserve this. My wife doesn't love me anymore. My husband doesn't. Whatever it is, we can tend to have those moments where we begin to rationalize things. I mean, here, here's, here's the thing, and, and, and this breaks my heart because I know it's not just about a church, but it's also about a family. But I mean, seriously, you, you, you can't even hardly go a month anymore without finding another pastor who's fallen into sexual sin. And again, my heart breaks for, for their church, obviously, but my heart breaks for that family too. And I've, I've even heard, listen, I've heard interviews with, with pastors that have gone through that, and, 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 and I've heard kind of this idea come out several times, this concept of, of basically like, well, I, I was just so stressed out. I, I, it was, it's, it's, they just justify it all the time. They justify it. And it's too easy to rationalize. It's too easy to justify it. We've got to be on guard against it. We have to be on guard against it. Because remember what we talked about before. It's not always just in the moment. A lot of times it's that process that we have to be aware of. Number four. Number four. Don't allow temptation to turn into sin. Don't allow temptation to turn into sin. Remember back in the story. 
David's on the roof. What, you know, you know, here's what's great. If David, listen, if David had basically been on the roof, had done everything that he was, you know, he's still supposed to be out at war, still supposed to be out there, but David had been out there, he just took his nap, he walked up, I kind of talked about this before, and he looked and went, oh dear, okay, I'm out. No story. I don't know what I would have spoken on this morning. Actually, I do. I, I know what I'm speaking on next week, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? But he doesn't. We need to understand that, that we are tempted. Okay? Jesus was tempted. Being tempted is not a sin. But when we allow ourselves to fall to that temptation, that was where it becomes sin. You know, I mean, in our world today, I mean, if I said basically, hey, you can't ever be tempted in this arena, we'd all be in trouble. There's just, I mean, maybe we could lock ourselves in our room with no nothing connection to the world. Temptation here isn't the issue. The issue is that David, when he was tempted, he begins to act on that temptation to make a sin take place. When he wrote the letter, when he does his scheming, all these things bring it about. Number five, never try to cover up or hide sin. Uh, acknowledge sin immediately, especially to God. Because really, when you talk about what David did throughout all this process, he's just covering everything up. That's what he's doing. It's, it's the greatest cover-up in Israel's history kind of a thing up to that time or whatever. So he's trying to cover it up. He's trying to keep it from getting out. Listen, we all sin. We all fall short. We all do things. But listen, we need when we sin to go to our Father who loves us, who will forgive us and acknowledge it and say, you know what, God, I have sinned. And allow that forgiveness to take place. Never try to hide it. Never try to cover it up. Go to God and allow Him to do and bring forth that forgiveness. Principle number six. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. Now here's the thing. And we need to understand this a little bit. I'm not fooling, foolish enough to believe that in Israel at this time, there were individuals that were doing the exact same thing that David was doing. But David was the king. David was held to a higher standard because of what God had done. I am not saying in any way, shape, or form those people that were in his kingdom doing it, it wasn't sin. It was. But sometimes we look at the price that David paid and we go, man, that's something. That, 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 is, that, is, that is almost harsh. But you know what? David had a lot of responsibility, so he was held accountable to that. And the second thing is this. The more responsibility you and I have, the more, listen, hear me, the more we're growing in our faith, the more accountability we need in our lives. The, listen, hear me here. The greater maturity level you get to is not, I'm doing this, I'm growing, so I need less accountability. You need more accountability. Why? Because your responsibility is growing. And you need to make sure that in those moments, you're following and walking with God. So the more the responsibility, the greater the accountability. Number seven, this is the last one. And this is big. Your sin has devastating effects on others. Devastating effects. You know, and this one, this could cover... All sin, obviously. But listen, we, Uriah dies. And you know what's interesting? 
Uriah's not the only one that dies in this. You catch that? Uriah doesn't go only by himself to the wall, because that would have indicated a little bit of cuckoo-ness. So he goes with other people, and then people pull back. Uriah dies, and other people die. It affects so much. We're not going to get into it this morning, but part of the, the punishment that David receives is the child dies. I mean, this, this, is, this affects a lot. Some of the things that his children do, and, and I mean, like I said earlier, his family is, gets to be a mess right now. A mess. Listen, hear me here. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It can affect your family. It can affect your workplace, your friends, your kids. It can affect so many people. And it did in David's life. It has devastating effects. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to close. And look, I know this message is... is it's kind of it's kind of real. It's kind of you know, this isn't this isn't a fun necessarily message even to share. But here's the thing: I, I don't want to share a message like this because here's the thing: the story doesn't end in Second Samuel 12. Okay, the story doesn't end there. And so I want to encourage you because. I don't want you to leave this place going, oh my goodness, you know, yeah, we need to learn. Yeah, we need to understand. Yeah, we've seen some great things in David's life, and today we're talking about a, 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 a not-so-great thing in David's life. But the last point we want to talk about, and I used these words on purpose, so you need to catch them. The last thing I want to talk about is the joy of repentance. The joy of repentance. Because in this moment, David could have done a lot of things to Nathan. He could have had him killed. He could have said, you know what, I'm not listening to you. I don't have to listen to you. He, he could have done a lot of things. And in this moment, David repents. Now remember, there's still consequences. But David repents before God. You know, one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I believe, is this concept of, you know, or maybe it was last week, when we talk about David's heart and, and we talk about the fact that one of the things that really made David's heart like God's was not his perfection. It was his willingness to repent. It was his willingness to do that. And David breaks before God. And, and listen, I, I don't know about you, but, but I've got to imagine that, that David obviously knew what he had done. And remember, this has been about a year. So for a year, David has probably been living, knowing him and knowing what we know about his character, even though he's not perfect. He's got to be just dealing with all the guilt and all the shame of all this. I can only imagine like him looking at Bathsheba, and every time he looked at her, all he could see was Uriah. just carrying that for a whole year of just you know I'm, I'm the king I'm, I'm supposed to be the leader and what have I done I can't believe I 
but I, what, do I, what do I do now? And you know, sometimes that's what sin does in our lives. It's like we, we know we should have done this, but, but it becomes like, well, but I, I should have done it yesterday. And, and, and so it just keeps building and keeps building and keeps building into the point where it's like, well, now I can never get forgiveness because, because it was too long ago almost. You know what I mean? And so David here has got to be living in guilt and shame. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. In 2 Samuel 12, real simply, in 13, it's not on your notes. It says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, well, yeah, but Bathsheba, this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And we're not, we don't have time to get into it. I, I encourage you to look at 2 Samuel 12 and you'll see even more about what kind of happens in here. But David, David writes a psalm in Psalm 32. When you talk about, because God forgives him and God, God restores and, and, and God still does things. God wasn't finished with David in this moment. But let's look at Psalms 32 verses 1 through 5. Let's hear his heart. Let's, let's listen to what David is saying. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, who, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin for that whole year, he's saying, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. We've all messed up. We've all committed sins. Obviously, the Bible shares with us we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all messed up. But you know what? I don't know about you, and again, I can only speak for me. There is a joy in repentance. There is a joy when we come to our Father and say, you know what, God? It wasn't her. It wasn't him. It was me. I take responsibility. I sinned against you. I did what was wrong in your sight. Will you forgive me? And God says, yeah, I've been waiting for you to come. I'll separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins were as red as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. And in that moment, the guilt and the shame and all those things that, as David said, were crowding down on him were released. And there is a joy again that comes in repentance. Listen to me. Hear my heart here. There is an understanding that we as Christians are to live with the joy of the Lord. It is literally our strength. But the problem is a lot of us are walking around with hidden sin and sexual sin and issues with sin and we can't figure out why we don't have joy. We can't understand why we're brought down and we're tired both physically, mentally, and spiritually. 
I would say that there's some, probably some areas in our life that we need to give over to God and say, you know what, God, I need forgiveness here. God, I've hidden this for way too long. I need to forgive here. I need you to forgive me, and I need to do some forgiving of myself. And when we do that, and when all that guilt and shame is removed, when God literally wipes it clean, there's joy. Listen, hear my heart here. One of the greatest moments that you can ever experience besides your own salvation, spiritually speaking, hear me, is when you watch someone else go to death to life spiritually. And you know what I found 100% of the time? There is a joy that comes to those people. Why? Because their sins are forgiven. They were on the way to death, but now they're going to life. And there's something amazing that has taken place. God has taken it and made all things new. And there is a joy because there is a freedom that comes from forgiveness. When we know, we know that we are walking with God and that all those things have been forgiven. So yeah, I get it. It's a weird right before Thanksgiving message. But you know one of the greatest things you can be thankful for this, forgive, this Thanksgiving is the forgiveness of our God. That we know when we mess up and we will mess up that we can go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. And that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You see, David was called a man after God's own heart after the sin with Bathsheba just as much as he was before. We want a heart like David, but to have it, we have to have a heart of repentance. Repentance can be such a dirty word, but I tell you what, repentance is a beautiful word because once again, it brings us back into that close, intimate relationship with God. Sin separates. Forgiveness Repentance brings us home. And that's what God wants. So let's all close our eyes. Let's take a moment. And I'm going to ask you just very bluntly, this has been a very blunt message, a kind of a blunt uh, day when it comes to this thing. I'm going to be serious. Is there sin in your life? And here's the thing. If, you, if there is, there, there's a very good chance, as we've been talking about this, you, the, that, th that sin has been popped up in your mind. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit's been like, uh, hey, here it is. Here it is. This is what we need to deal with. And here's the thing. If there is, I got good news for you. Our God forgives. Remember, we, we don't have these stories in the Old Testament because these people were perfect. We have them because we get to see the good and the bad and the forgiveness that Jesus brings. So no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how big or small in your mind, I can stand before you with confidence this morning, knowing that the scriptures tell us that God will forgive and he will make all things new. We just got to bring it to him. We got to lay it down. We got to be like David and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. And then know and believe and trust that God will forgive us of all those things. Let's, let's celebrate that this Thanksgiving. Let's be thankful for the awesome love, grace, and mercy of our God. But we got to bring it to Him. We got to bring it to Him.
So I'm going to pray with you. And if you're that individual right now, I just want you just to give it to him. Speak it out, okay? Speak it out. Some of you, maybe you need to go home and maybe get a, a, a and write it out. Write it, get it, get it on paper or get it spoken out. Get it forgiven so you can move on and experience the joy that we have because of what Christ has done for us. So Father, right now, I pray that, and I believe that you have been through your Holy Spirit, been illuminating things in all of our lives that maybe there's some stuff there that doesn't belong there. There's some stuff that we've been hiding, thinking, hey, nobody knows. Everybody's unaware. For some of us, Father, it may be that we're moving in a direction that we need to immediately stop. We're flirting with somebody we should have no business flirting with. We're sharing things we have no business. We're dabbling in stuff that is going to lead to death and destruction. And Father, you have brought this moment and this message as a wake-up call to us saying, listen, your path is going to lead to destruction. Stop it right now. Stop it and turn around and go the other way. Run from it. So Father, no matter who we are in this situation, whether we need to come to you and bring that sin and receive your forgiveness, whether it's that we need to forgive, ask for forgiveness for heading that direction and turn around and walk the other way, God, whatever it is, God, we can have joy knowing that you forgive, knowing that we can be made right in your sight and be made righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because of yours. So God, right now, we need illumination. We need the discernment that you give us to deal with these issues. We know you love us. We know you forgive us. We can walk out of here encouraged and with joy, knowing that we are loved, forgiven, and with you. We love you. We thank you. I'm going to have John and the worship team come and lead us in a quick closing chorus.
Thank you, Father. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you sent Jesus to live, to offer himself, and then to rise again three days later so that we could come to you boldly and ask for forgiveness and watch you wipe our guilt away. And behold, we can be a new creation, forgiven, forgiven, and be in your family. We love you. We thank you. Let that burn in our hearts this morning that we can have a heart like yours, not because of our perfection, but because we are forgiven and made right in your sight. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would just be with us this week. Father, I pray just protection, maybe for those that are traveling or uh, for this holiday week. And God, that you just be with them and just help them have a great time with family and friends, being thankful to you for all that you have done. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Listen, I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. For all of you that are online, we miss you. Have a great Thanksgiving as well. We hope to see you soon. I love you all so, so very much, and I'm so thankful for all of you in our lives. Love you. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great week and a great Thanksgiving.